So does implicit bias in Christians exist? Or is it just a left-wing plot to make our kids feel bad? And if implicit bias does exist, would Jesus consider it a sin? Catherine Martin, the author of the book, The Colorful Image of God, A White Christian's Guide to Doing Better, has a challenge for us on the podcast today. I know sometimes we're like, I just don't want to talk about race anymore, but let me encourage you to have this discussion. It's a really very much an important one. And while you're thinking about hanging out for this podcast, would you also consider going to our website at pastor-paul.com? and subscribing to help keep all this free content on the air. I do hours and hours of free content every week, and I'm empowered to do that by the subscriptions of people like you who love our message that God is not mad at people and not mad at the world. Pastor-Paul.com is the website. As little as $5.99 a month can help a lot. You can give up to $100 a month, and I will be so, so grateful. So love to you all as you consider that. And again, we know some budgets won't allow, and you still have our love, even if you can't. Now back to our podcast with Catherine Martin on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. I'm excited to have Catherine Martin with us today on the Post-Evangelical Podcast, where we talk about what first century faith can look like in the 21st century. And Catherine, I'm loving to have the chance to talk to you today. Um, Catherine, by the way, is a nonprofit leader, a justice, justice advocate, and a new author. And the book has a title that may shake a few of you out there. It's called The Colorful Image of God. A White Christian's Guide to Doing Better. I want to go back to that idea of the book I, I love, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, excellent resources to understand the systemic nature of racism. I, I, I think there are two, two cases to be looked at and made for people who, who say they're followers of Jesus. And one is the I'm not a racist, but then in conversation, you find yourself saying like, well, if if the fathers were in the house, they wouldn't be in prison, you know, or those or we wouldn't have the problems with those communities and those yeah. people. Yeah. And so the, the those two, that book and that documentary are such a good resource to say, you know, there's a pretty big reason why there's more fatherlessness in these more impoverished and redlined, we could say, communities from sure. our past. Um, not they just hate their kids more than we do or love their kids less than we do, you know, those those type of things. But then understanding from my vantage point, the the idea of the command of the Bible to take care of the poor, the foreigner, the outcast and the widow means more than just having a food pantry in your church and, and a backpack drive like we Christians should be the loudest voice against systemic racism. Uh, and, and instead, we've become the biggest opponent of things that can bring an end to systemic poverty and systemic racism. And so I just want to really emphasize that to people as they're looking inside and looking at whiteness and what it means in our history uh, to say, I think there's I actually don't see any commands to ban abortion in the Bible, but we can have a, a discussion about that. But I see this command 
to stop systemic racism in our culture nonstop through the whole Bible. And so I, I know you're big on looking at those things and looking at the history of our country and sort of where this came from. Kind of what was your journey of looking at that history and and, yeah. uh, and figuring it out? You mentioned redlining and there's there's hundreds, if not thousands of policies or systems or laws, right? Structures that um, literally in their formation were formed or built to advantage white people and mm -hmm. disadvantage people of color. And so I think, I, you know, there can be this tendency today to say, oh, why do we need to talk about things that happened 100 years ago? Or, oh, my gosh, but like, look now, like, you know, people of color are, are having access to jobs and, you know, oh, I had a friend and they went to a great four year college. Right. And these like kind of one off things. But to understand in its entirety, like how we got I mean, pick any system, Paul, education, criminal justice, housing, banking, health care. You literally can trace a through line back um, to origins of things that were inherently racist. And so, I mean, one example that I talk about in my book, because um, I just learned this like two years ago, was um, uh, Social Security, right? Where when that was originally written, it excluded domestic workers. Well, mm. who were the domestic workers when that was they were largely black women. And so white people and that, you know, began to accumulate more wealth and then therefore be able to pass it down. Right. And that wasn't the case for black women. I mean, and that's like a tiny thing, right? When you talk about wealth accumulation, I mean, you could, my gosh, there's so much that led us to where we are in this huge divide. Well, what, um, I mean, country. what's a bigger, what's a bigger wealth grower than property ownership? And, right. Well, right, right. Right. And you look back when, um, you know, in, in our early times when land was being distributed, right. That, was stolen from the Native Americans, but like who got access to that land? White men, right? And so, and so I just, for people to say like, oh, like that was so long ago. One, it really wasn't. But again, there's, there's these policy systems that were inherently built to benefit white people, white men largely. And then over time, they've just gotten built on. And so it's going to take more than undoing a few things to like actually, you know, we're going to have to build some new systems and really dismantle some of the current ones to get us to a different place in our country. And so that was, I mean, I'm still on the journey, but it, I mean, I keep learning things all the time about our history, but seeing some of those through lines was really powerful because then some of the individual ignorant arguments about, well, I'm sure they're just not working hard enough. Like they just don't right. make any sense anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, redlining was a policy in our city of yeah. Fresno uh, for decades and decades. And then when the federal government put an end to it, it was just a practice and it was a practice well into the eighties. This, this wasn't the fifties. Right. This was still happening and written into the leases of property in the city of Fresno into the 80s saying you couldn't, if you bought this property, you couldn't sell it to certain yes. peoples. Yes. And, and so today in 2022, still there was a, a study done recently here that uh, a, a child born in a, in a zip code in Southeast Fresno or Southwest Fresno, excuse me, where most of our populations of color are congregated. Um, the life expectancy of a child born in that zip code versus the zip code that I live in, for instance, is is 20 years less. My children 
will be predicted to live 20 years longer than a child born in that zip code. And as somebody who says I'm a follower of the Christian Bible, and, and the Bible in Jeremiah 29, 7 says, pray for the welfare of your city, seek the welfare of your city, not pray for it, seek it, actively seek the welfare of your, of your city, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It, it, and to me, we see this all through the Old Testament prophets, like if we forget justice for the poor and the foreigner and the marginalized, we're doomed as a culture ultimately. And I, I think it's part of what we see now. And that's why this history, I think, is is so important and not to be defensive, as some people are doing in the comment list now, but to be open to say, if there's any of this in me, like, I may even think I don't have it in me. But if I do, I want to know it. And I want to get it out. I want to have that humble heart, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, and even just, I mean, again, White defensiveness is a real thing. White guilt is real. White fragility is real. These things for people that are newer to this conversation, all those emotions are going to come up. And so I tried to write my book with a lot of grace um, because we're all on a journey and like we, we've got to invite more people in, right, to, to be a safe space to ask questions. But yeah, I mean, I, the fact that, you know, our hearts aren't just breaking on the regular when we look at again, any system and just the disparate outcomes, you know, you just gave a great one um, in your context, but whether it's, you know, kids reading levels or access to college graduation or um, wealth or housing, or, I mean, think about COVID just recently and some of the disparities we saw there, like you look at these outcomes and like, that's where I'm like, when we think about being people of faith, we should be like, oh my gosh, that there are whole groups of people, literally the commonality is the color of their skin. And these outcomes are so different from white people. We should be mad about that, I think, as a yeah. church, right? And we should all be, we can't solve it all, but we should figure out what, what, where is our heart stirred and dig in on that issue, right? I mean, that, it, yeah. Uh, and particularly around George Floyd, you know, that should have been and and is in a lot of ways a, a bellwether moment for our culture. Sure. But that should have been the end of anything that we held on to tightly before. Um, you know, I I was stunned at our passionate hatred of President Obama. That's that's when I really, really got serious about deconstructing my faith and my Christian politics. But to see in such vivid form systemic racism happening in front of our eyes. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it should have been an absolute heartbreaking repentance moment for, for Christian Church of America to, to, again, just as you say, not not necessarily to say I'm bad, but just to say, oh, my gosh, if, if we are in any way a part of this, yeah. God, reveal our hearts and change it. And it and it seems again like we've gone the other direction. We care more about Kyle Rittenhouse than we do about George Floyd. It's crazy to me. And I uh, I recently read um Jamar Tisby's book. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's he's great. Uh How to Fight Racism. He also wrote The Color of Compromise. But you know, he's talking about um, you know, he shares some biblical examples of even when um the, the the person didn't didn't do the thing there should be as followers of Christ this collective lament and confession 
it's okay. You, you might not have done something racist today, but yeah. <laughs> as white people, right? And sadly, as white Christians, a lot of time, there is a collective lament and repentance. Mm-hmm. And I would say an ongoing individual repentance. If we could just kind of take a deep breath and say, you know what, like, Implicit bias, it, it's it's sin. Like, I, I, you know, like if you're a Christian that believes that like we're not perfect, then like we're not perfect in this area either, right? And right. I mean, I share a bunch of vulnerable examples of places where I've screwed up because we all have the thoughts and we all do the things. And so just to say like, it's 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 normal. It's it's like human behavior, right? We have biases. We're gonna, you know, but um, but I do think even for things that we didn't individually do there's got to be more humility. And um, yeah, I think a collective sense of ownership. And I think that too, Paul, is where in Western Christianity, there's such a focus on the individual. And so even this idea of sort of the collective, that's not sort of in our DNA. Right. Right. And so I think, especially, you know, sometimes in evangelical churches, white churches, I should say, there's the it's, it's you, you know, and your individual salvation and, and sure spread the gospel. But this this collective, we're all community. We are all tied together. Right. In the body of yeah. Christ, I think sometimes gets lost. And so I just I hope that we can kind of rekindle that a bit. And I, I even take that a step further to say we are connected as people groups like like where where the idea of cities came from in the United States. We had a bunch of people living on farms right and and all of a sudden you know one of the barns would catch on fire and everybody would come and put out the fire and rebuild the barn but as as populations grew people became more you know different and and that became less and and finally somebody said you know what we need to organize so that we have a fire department that will put out these fires when this Hmm. happens and and that's how city so we are not just tied together by our faith, we're tied together by being a people group together. So a city, and and we see this all through the Bible that, you know, in Jeremiah, it is like, hey, you've forgotten about justice for the poor. So God is going to destroy us as the prophets around Jeremiah were saying, no, God, we're God's chosen people. We can't be hurt. We're, he's going to make Israel great again. And Jeremiah is like, no, we're, we've kind of forgotten who we are as a people. And even Jesus did this. Jesus said, hey, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. Well, I'm, I'm sure all three million people in Jerusalem that day hadn't killed a prophet. Right. But the judgment of their mindset was over them or the woes to the city that Jesus said, I think, in Matthew 11, you know, Capernaum, you think you guys are amazing. I'm telling you, you're not. And Sodom's going to have a better judgment day than you. So we see this. I, I just think that's a really important point you're making that that we are responsible to our people group, which is our city, our church, our community, all of those things. And it sort of changes our view on these things, I think. Wow, doesn't Catherine bring a great perspective on systemic racism and a painful but loving challenge to us all? Let me take a quick break from all of that as unconventional Pastor Paul and invite you to an unconventional conversation. We have these conversations every month, you and me and others in a Zoom room saying we're not going to walk out this deconstruction thing alone. 
one Sunday a month, we get together and chew on the nine major topics of deconstruction. You may be surprised to find out it's only $5.99 to join and we will hang out together. So join the conversation. I can't wait to have that unconventional conversation with you. And remember, we do it every month. You can find out more of that at the website, pastor-paul.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Catherine Martin on the Post-Evangelical Podcast from our website, pastor-paul.com. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so you talked about um, one of the things I have on my notes here from you is why proximity matters. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is, yeah. is part of the problem is we're just literally separated from people. I do. I think that is part of it. Um, right. I mean, if you think about it, like the our schools, our neighborhoods, our churches, um, I think I had a, a African-American friend the other day asked me, like, I don't get it sometimes. Like how how a white person like in their 40s, 50s, 60s, like they've lived here. Like, what do you mean they don't see it? Right. What do you mean? And I said, again, our, our world is can be pretty segregated. And so if you're a white person and choose to live in a certain place and send your kids to certain school and work for certain places, like, and go to certain churches and all the things you can make your world pretty white. Right. And so, um, there's that, um, I think proximity and then hopefully proximity leads to real relationships is so important when we're talking about justice and when we're talking about understanding. So, um, I love the way Brian Stevenson talks about this. He started the Equal Justice Initiative, right? And his his story um, that he writes about in Just Mercy of being a young attorney and um, meeting a guy that was on death row and that sort of, you know, really yeah. influencing him and sort of re- helped him rethink everything. Um, he was proximate to the injustice, right? And he talks about like, if we want to solve, if we want to create a more just world, we got to get close to the to the injustices, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And so I think that when we're talking about injustices really matters. Like, um, I mean, I think for me, one of the most sort of life-changing relationships I had that added fuel to my fire around this was a relationship that I was a young girl that I was mentoring, an African-American girl here in Charlotte. And as I got to know her and walk alongside her family, seeing the hoops that she had to jump through from age 10 when we met till, you know, she's now 21 in her school, in housing, just in everyday life are hoops that my white children will never even know about Paul. Mm -hmm. And I think walking with her, you're sort of like, oh, wow. Like that's no longer some one-off news story of somebody that eh, maybe they weren't that smart to begin with. No, 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 no. These are like real smart, awesome people. Um, And so that proximity changed me and I think will often change people. And then you get into that real relationship, right? I mean, when we're talking about racism, given the connection between income and race in America, certainly, you know, a lot of folks living in poverty are black and brown. But for me, and you've talked about this with some of your relationships, I mean, like middle class black people are experiencing racism every day in our country, right? We're not Mm -hmm. just talking about the poor. And so, again, relationships with many of my colleagues who are now dear friends when they said, hey, let me tell you what happened to me last weekend or let me tell you this story Again, that's no longer some far off story, right? That is somebody that you love. Um, and so their hurt becomes your hurt, right? And so I just think that um, for, for a lot of people, 
you can look at all the data, you can read all the books, but until you are in relationship with people who you come to care about and you walk in their shoes, your heart never really softens to this, unfortunately. Yeah. And so I just think getting proximate, um, getting proximate to injustices really matters and building relationships with folks of color really matters too. And not in a tokenizing way, right? But really looking for authentic opportunities to put yourself in situations where you can diversify your network, I think really matters for white people. Yeah, and and some in our, our group of friends uh, who are of African-American lineage, um, they are very high level execs, both husband and wife, very well-to-do people. And they're also the, the, they just wanted to have a lot of kids. And so every two years they were having kids. So they actually have, I think, six children, which I can't even imagine, but they <laughs> love them and they love it, you know, and, 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 but often said if they were in the supermarket or particularly if just, if just the wife had taken the, all the kids to the supermarket, they would mm. get looks and sneers mm. and kind of like, why don't you stop having babies? That mm -hmm. was even said to her once. Mm -hmm. uh, and to a, a very well-to-do person that just wanted to have more quivers in the, you know, arrows in the quiver. And, and those are the things we just have to learn uh, to get around and, and not, not be a party to anymore. And, and I, I hear Christians a lot too say, well, we have all kinds of people of all kinds of different races in our church and sometimes, and I have to be really careful about how I say this because I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to be condescending to anybody of any race, but in a lot of ways, we do invite other races to our churches, but then we say, again, very covertly, probably become us, you know, to, to be in our community, you have to become us and us is white. Yeah. And yeah. And I think there's, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier, there is a white way of doing things. And when you're white, you don't know that necessarily until you right. start unpacking and doing the work. Um, Austin Channing Brown is another author that I love, a black woman who talks about many times in her career being the only black women, woman in um, white churches. And it this idea of, you know, and I've heard this, this sentiment from a lot of folks, it's like, they wanted me for the diversity, right? Whether it's a workplace right. or church, whatever. They wanted my black skin. They wanted my brown skin, whatever. My mar the marginalized piece of me, and and but they didn't want all of me. So they wanted me in the door. But then when I got in the door, they actually didn't want to know my experiences fully. They didn't actually want to change anything. They wanted me to assimilate to their white ways of being. And that, and again, I don't think. You know, I don't think a lot of people are doing this with malintent. Again, it is just because right. the white way has been normalized and everything else is other. And so that's why, you know, it was it was interesting. I had a conversation the other day with a group of white women and they were sort of unpacking some of this stuff. And they said, you know, we we try to invite the um, some of our African-American sisters, you know, that live on the other side of town to join a board or to come to our event. And everything was about coming to us. Yeah. And I thought, do y'all ever go to them? Right. Like, what is that exchange? Because there's a real power play. Right. I mean, there's a real power issue here. Um, and so I think those are things that um, I think we've just really got to be honest about the difference in intent and an impact. I think there's people with a ton of good intent. There's also some people with not. Let's be clear. But right. I do think there are a lot of 
people with good intentions, but because they're not sort of unpacking and learning about their own identity, because they're not open to racism exists and sort of learning about that, because right. they're not listening to people of color and their stories deeply, um, then the impact is much different than the intent. And I think we need to be held accountable to the impact that we're having on all people and on the earth, right? I mean, as Christians, like what is our relationship with with God, with neighbor, with earth? And, and we got to be accountable to all that, Paul. And so I think that's a place where there's some more learning to do. How do we create truly inclusive cultures so that we don't just get the diversity part right, but that actually yeah. everyone can be that bring their best full selves to the table. My wife is always one of like, well, we have to have grace for those right wing Christians as well, don't we? You know, and and my grace is running out. I, I got to be honest. Like, if you're, and and I agree with you, many well intentioned people just still don't know. But in some ways, I think you're choosing not to know now. There's so much information out there. There's so much social media things going on. Like, and we get stuck in our echo chamber. I get it. But let me challenge you if you're listening to this and somebody who was commenting earlier, like challenge yourself. Just say, I don't think I'm racist, but if there's any of this in me, I want to know. And I'm going to be intentional about learning because I think you kind of have to have to uh, coordinate off a little bit and and really stay in that echo chamber. I, I do want to ask you about the fact, here's a shocker, you are a white woman. And I think this is a challenge for a lot of us who are white in the, in the uh, public space of allyship. Um, you mentioned elevating BIPOC voices and encouraging people to read books written by people of color. So how do you navigate now that you have a book in that space of color as a white woman? Yeah, appreciate the question. And I struggled a lot, right, whether to write it. I felt like God put it on my heart, like share your story, share your mistakes, like let let other people learn from you. And also I've wrestled with that a lot of who am I as a white woman to write a book about race? You know, um, the book is my story. I will say that. And I do think that as humans, sometimes it's not right, but we are willing to listen to people that look and sound like us. And so I feel comfortable with the fact that if my book can be a door opener, can be a first book that a white person or a white Christian would read and say, oh, wow, if Catherine can sort of share from the last 15 years all that she's learned and is still learning, racist thoughts that she had, things that she didn't understand, um, admittance of all the things about white privilege that she came to, huh, and maybe I see some similarity, right, with my gender or faith or skin tone. And so maybe maybe there's something for me. I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, I we need more people um, fighting injustices. We need more people fighting racism. And so if there's different entry points to get into the fight and I can be one of those helpful spots, Paul, I'm all for it. Now I will say, and I tell this to people all the time, if you're going to read 10 books this year that have to do with race, um, read one to two by white people. If that helps you learn from their experience, because I think there's something there and make sure everything else you're reading and listening to on you know social media and books and all are, are, um, are folks of color. Right. And I, I think it's just important in general that we're learning from people's experience different from our own. Right. And so, again, um, I wanted my book to be an invitation if it could sort of wake up some other people to begin to have an aha to think, oh, gosh, I want to go do X, Y or Z. Um, 
that's why I feel okay with it. Um, But again, I, I mentioned a lot of books in the back of my book. I've mentioned a few tonight. I definitely want to be pointing people to leaders of color um, that we can learn from. Yeah, the book is The Colorful God, The Colorful Image of God. Sorry, I keep getting that wrong. A White Christian's Guide to Doing Better. And Catherine has offered to those following us on the live feed here uh, a, a few free books to give away. So if you go to my website, pastor-paul.com, send me a message through the community chat board or through uh, the contact us page and say, hey, I want one of those books. We'll, we'll draw some winners out and, and give those away. And so let's finish with this. And I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion. How has this impacted your journey as, as a Christian? Or has it, I guess maybe I should ask. And, and in this podcast, we're talking to a lot of people who are sort of in that deconstructing space as that's, that's become, a, become a thing. And how has this impacted, transformed, adjusted your Christianity as you've walked through this idea of race? Yeah, I think two things come to mind. I mean, one, I have had a lot of those thoughts of, Um, why did I learn about this in a secular workplace predominantly? Why didn't I learn about this in the church? And that's not to put blame on the church, but rather to say, when we're thinking about the topics we're going to address in our sermon series or the books we're going to read or our Bible studies for the year, like racism and the inhumane treatment of other people, black and brown people in the United States, like should should be up there. Right. And so I I think that there's a piece of like, huh, um, just from me and the institution of the church sort of wondering, like, what is that about? And it's it's leading me. Honestly, this piece is a little newer of really thinking about what other things was I told or not told in the church where I need to do my own learning or unlearning. So there's mm. that piece. But I think probably more importantly, Paul, is that um, if, you know, maybe take out the word Christian for a second. Cause I think that can be triggering. And we just right. think about being Christ-like and, and, and I think that waking up to my white skin, my white privilege, my um, complicitness in a system of racism in our country has allowed me to um, want to humble myself and love better and fight for justice more and, be more patient, honestly, and um, experience joy in different ways from other cultures. My gosh, it's really cool when you can learn and celebrate from with other cultures. There's lots yeah. of cool cultures, right? That joy has been awesome with some of my newer friendships of the last decade with people of color. And so when I think about Christ-like and fruits of the spirit and other things that Christ embodied, Paul, I think this journey has led me to be further along on that journey to become Christ-like, which is what I want to try to be doing all my life, um, by leaps and bounds than I was when I was sort of clueless about my whiteness and race 15 years ago. And I think that that, I mean, it truly, I, I said, I, I started, it, it was a spiritual awakening in the beginning, but I think God continues to shape my heart and open my eyes to biases and um, things that he wants to work on with me. And if, and if I can become more like Jesus, right. I don't want to say that lightly. Um, I'll never get there, but if, if there's little changes I can make to love better, that's, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be about. And I think this, this has really helped me. Mm, that's, that's beautiful. And that 
not hardening of our heart is a, a command that we're given as well. And I, I always say every Christian ought to have to read Jonah, the book of Jonah, and particularly Jonah chapter four every year and be Jonah, say, I'm Jonah, and, and have God say to us, do you do well to think this way? Do you do well to want me to punish 120,000 people that aren't your people? And, and some Christians would say, well, they repented. But if you really read between the lines of what Jonah is saying, he's saying, I didn't want to come here because I knew you were going to have mercy on these people. And I don't want you to have mercy on these people. In fact, Jonah says it very emphatically. I'd rather be dead than live in a world where you treat these people like you treat us. And I think there is an underlying thought in our Christian white, Christ, or culturally white Christian church of we love people and we reach out to them. But at the end of the day, we don't want God to have the same mercy for them that we want for ourselves. And I don't think there's a bigger sin out there. I mm. take mm. any sin you want to claim the Bible has. Mm. And I don't think you can find anything that matches the idea of not having mercy for people and people groups as being uh, a, just an affront to Jesus. Mm. That's the book that we say we follow. Yeah. yeah. So your message is really important. I'm glad you're getting this book out there. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to share it with your community. And it's been just really awesome to talk to you and getting to know you a little bit better. I really appreciate it. Is it an exciting journey for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Exciting is one word for it, right? That's it. That's a good one, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Catherine Martin. And, uh, and the book, again, is The Colorful Image of God, A White Christian's Guide to Doing Better. I hope everybody will pick it up. And again, send me a message through my website at pastor-paul.com. We'll give some of them away. And appreciate everybody who has hung out with us on the live stream and uh, always glad to talk to everybody. So thanks for hanging out, Catherine. Let me get off the live stream and, and tell you goodbye. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you have anything in your budget and in your heart to be able to help us bring the free content we bring from uh, Pastor Paul, go to my website, pastor-paul.com and consider subscribing and check out all the resources we have there for you. In the meantime, remember, God is not mad at you. He's not mad at the world either. We'll see you next time on the Post-Evangelical Podcast.